Well, reason for the call today, John, is... Welcome to Internal Use Only. Something just came across my desk, John. It is perhaps the best thing I've seen in the last six months. If you have 60 seconds, I'd like to share the idea with you. Got a minute? A podcast for wholesalers. Always be closing. Always be closing. By wholesalers. Blue Horseshoe loves Anacott Steel. Okay, before we get started, I have one question. Has anyone here passed a Series 7 exam? I have a Series 7 license. Good for you. You can get out. Let's cut to the chase. Here's your host, Dan Sullivan. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the 53rd episode of the Internal Use Only Podcast. Today, we are joined by Guy Costin, founder and CEO of Dakota Funds. If you don't know Dakota, they are the go-to resource for investment sales professionals, whether that is for fundraising, database solution, or even in-person events. They truly cater to today's wholesaler. Guy's passion for investment sales shines throughout this episode where we cover Dakota's own sales process and how they structure their day-to-day activities, storytelling, and of course, sales career advice. Very special thanks to podcast listeners Paulo Aguilar and Sam Warner, who helped coordinate this episode. Before we get to today's interview, please follow the show on Instagram at Internal Use Only Podcast for more show updates, episode updates, polls, and more. Without further ado, let's send it over to today's interview with Guy Costin. This is a very well-timed episode. I've had a number of our listeners say they would love to have you on the show and your firm. And coincidentally, I had a a little client get together in Boston last night, and two of the people there were huge fans, and they are, I suppose, users or clients of Dakota. So welcome to the show. How are you? Great. Well, thanks for having me. Well, I'd like to start things off by asking our guests about their career journey and their experience. I don't think anybody wakes up one day and says, you know, I want to go out there and sell investment products to institutions. But lo and behold, you found the investment sales role. So how did you first get into the career? And what was your journey like prior to starting Dakota? So it's 1997. I went to work for Reef, which is a Chicago-based institutional real estate manager marketing one of their REIT mutual funds, so a REIT stocks. And what I love, and that's how I got into it. What I love about it is you're telling, I mean, the investment business is such a cool business. You're doing very smart people really cool products. But what I, where it fits my personality well is I love trying to take a complex story and simplifying it down. And that's really the essence of investment sales is can you take something that's very complex and make it really easy to understand? How about Dakota? So that's something that so many of our listeners are familiar with. They're huge fans, which I, I give you complete credit for. So what was the inspiration for Dakota? You're the founder and CEO. I'd love to just know what inspired you to start the firm? So, you know, one thing is, and I'll, the, the neatest thing about, and you said that, you know, the fans, I just, I, I couldn't be more thankful because we, we're really trying. It's a, it's a very tough job, right? Raising money is a very, very hard job. Providing the best possible resources to invest in salespeople is really what we're all about. So we founded the firm in 2006. And when we founded it, it was a real estate fund of funds business. So I come out of a firm called Cole Capital. We proposed an idea to them, which would be a real estate fund of funds, opportunistic real estate fund of funds. We called on the Townsend Group in Cleveland and asked them, hey, if we created a fund, would you guys manage it and pick all the managers? They said yes. And that's how it got going. Simultaneously, in the fall of 2006, 
I had met Alan Breed from Edgewood Management the prior year. He runs a 22 stock large cap growth portfolio. And that was the and that's exactly how we started in October of 2006. Any other behind the scenes stories about like the inception or launch? I know for founders, there's usually like a, a moment of inspiration or even just random stories where people are at meetings or coffee, you just have the idea to go out and get going. Any any like behind the scenes stories like that that'd be interesting for our audience to know about how the actual firm was was started? Yeah, that, well, that actually was born out of, we pitched the idea to Cole Capital to do it within their firm. And not only did they say no, but they said, and, and by the way, we don't need your services anymore. So they fired me. Um, kind of a you know crazy situation. So with three kids and the whole thing, um, it, was a, it was definitely a pretty you know dramatic time to be starting your own the, a new business. Um, but we did it. And I would say if you really want to know the the true inspiration around why we exist today was when I started my career in 1989 after coming out of the University of Virginia. I think I up until starting to code, I had 11 different jobs. So I kind of did you know 18 months at a time. Uh, I had success along the way doing those things, but having that kind of turnover in your career is really counterproductive. You really want to find a place. Uh, that's you know supportive, has a good product, a good culture, where you can stay for a long period of time and really build a business. And so one of the key aspects of the company still today is to make sure that we slot people into a career and really help them build and grow their career. And there's all, they're constantly growing and supporting that so they don't have to come in and have all these fits and starts like I did, where they can come in right after college, we can train them up, they can stay consistent uh, with the company and then grow their career. Just for so for reference, how many years would you say were you kind of bouncing around between jobs with like eighteen month gaps? I feel like as a as somebody who is, I guess, quote unquote, a millennial in investment sales, many of my peers are in the same boat. So I'm wondering, like, how long into your career did that last prior to actually settling? Was it like five years, ten years, fifteen oh, years, seventeen years? So yeah, it was seventeen years. And one of the reasons we created our database product, there, there there's good reason for why there's turnover in sales is because most organizations don't train their salespeople or provide them with the tools to be successful. And so one of the one of the key things, right, for any salesperson is good, clean, accurate uh, database of leads so a salesperson can make sales calls and that you're not searching the internet, government websites looking for people to call on. So that there there is a lot of turnover, but I believe there's a lot of turnover because there's a misalignment of expectations when you start your job or we're, we're all not given the proper resources to be successful. And that's what Dakota stands for, is providing those resources to salespeople so they can be successful. And that's what you're very, very well known for. I know a lot of the listeners who have, have shared, it's, it's funny, I know I'm, I, I referenced this, but even just last night, I think they might be a new client of yours, but they were just very excited that you've got access to the right people they need to call on, all the contact information, everything. Before we get more into the, the offerings and what Dakota has from like the database standpoint, you also have a group of individuals and a team that are out there actively fundraising. And I know that it's very important for any successful fundraiser or salesperson to have some form of process. So I know that the Dakota team has a, a, a great process in place. Why don't you describe what that is like today and how you and your team are out there using sales processes to better your outcomes for your clients? So when we, when we started Dakota... It was, I was really maybe a single salesperson. And then as it, as it went on and we started hiring people, I fell prey to what other sales leaders have, have probably fallen to as well, is that you want them to read your, your mind, right? You want them to look at what you do and emulate, emulate you. Well, that's really a failed leadership strategy. Uh, it's, it's a nice idea, 
right? Which is, you know, lead by example, and they, and they hope people pick up the P's and Q's. The problem with that is that uh, there's a lot of assumptions that are implied in a leadership strategy like that, right? And it, it'll be fits and starts. And I'm not interested, I was never interested in building a star system. I wanted to build a business where we could have defined accounts that people would call on and I would establish those accounts and they would come back and tell me how we stand against those accounts. So our, our, our sales process is rooted in this concept of focus on what matters most. And then it's really, it really comes down to once you establish that, if you're focusing what matters most is number one, know who to, we call it, know who to call on. So our sales process is all about establishing the proper total adjustable market for your strategy. So for instance, if it's a large cap growth mutual fund, uh, primary channel number one, RAs. Number two, simultaneously banks and BDs at the platform level for model portfolios. And so what's the sales process is? Make sure you have your TAM, your qualified accounts. And then what we immediately do, once we have that TAM, and let's say we have 300 RAs that we're calling on plus 50 bank and broker dealers. The goal then is to put five cities on the schedule at any given time. That's the mandate for our sales process. Our individual salespeople must have five cities they're scheduling for at any given time. You circle 9, 11, 1, 3, and 4.30, and you go into our database, Boston, right? So if you're in Boston, you'd have those five meeting slots, and you go into the RAs in Boston and email the due diligence analyst. And the reason that's so important is because it gives salespeople purpose when they come in the office. So they know they're always city scheduling. They don't have to wonder, hey, what email should I send or do this or that? There's complete clarity. And then what you do is on a daily basis, you're tracking how many first-time meetings you set up, how many follow-up meetings you set up, how many client service meetings you set up. And then you track that. You track your number of asks each day. It has to be 20 to 25. And if you repeat that process consistently, so it's the consistent application of that process. So that's core principle number one. And then once you've completed that, core principle number two is if you book that day of meetings in Boston, when you're in those meetings, you have to be able to bring a story to life. I can't tell you how important it is to be so thoughtful, and I can get in a lot more detail, but how important it is to be so thoughtful about what you're going to say in that meeting, the questions you're going to ask, the comments you're going to make, the interactions, kind of what the goal is. And then, and I'd say, if there's one thing that I'm going to say on this podcast for everyone listening, okay, is you have to do your follow-up in the meeting, right? That's the most important thing. The follow-up has to happen in the meeting. And you might say, Gee, what in the world does it mean follow-up in the meeting? Isn't that after the meeting? No, the follow-up's done in the meeting. So at the end of the meeting that you have, you master messenger, you bring the story to life, you connect with the due diligence analyst, you have a great meeting. And then I say, hey, Dan, question, um, large cap growth, concentrated. Do you see this being able to be, could you put this, do you see this going into your portfolio? Is this this type of strategy that you guys would invest in? If the answer is no, I know what my follow-up is. If you say yes, then I say, Dan, do you anticipate doing a search in the next 12 months? No. Okay, I know what the follow-up is. Yes, I do. Okay, great. Dan, do you think we could be included in that search? Absolutely. All right, what do you think the next steps are after this meeting that we need to do to better familiarize you with the strategy? Well, Guy, this is what I think we should do. I got to get my two colleagues on. Great. How about uh, have a Thursday at three o'clock? Great. No, it doesn't work. We have to push it out one more week. Okay, great. So my point of saying this, Dan, is that where salespeople fall down is they never ask the toughest questions to close a meeting. Thus, they finish the meeting and they're not clear. Just to close out our sales process, the third component of our sales process is you have to have a killer follow-up system. Now, it's a follow-up system, not killer follow-up, right? Yep. It's a killer follow-up <laughs> system, okay? And what that means is you have to get every meeting you do into your CRM 
to create past activity reports and pipelines. Those two reports, we can go into more detail, but those two reports should be uh, viewed daily. Okay, so you know, hey, you know, where do I stand in these different accounts? What should I be doing you know, based upon the feedback that I got in the meeting? And then we have something that has to go in the opportunity is that you have to have a box for current status and then a box for next step. And they always have to be filled out. And that's the process. And if you just repeat that process, establishing your TAM, doing city scheduling, when you're in the meeting, be a master messenger, close the meeting with asking the two most important questions, logging the information in a, in a CRM so you can, uh, with one click, rapidly see all of your footprints and the pipeline and where you stand. So it can force you to move those up in the sales cycle. If you, if, if you repeat that simple process day in and day out, if you have a good product, there's no way you're not going to have success. We have so much to unpack from that whole uh, that whole breakdown. Thank you for sharing that. That I love it. <laughs> this this is what this is what happens in these interviews. I get all this this these, this great run of information from sales professionals, and then I'm like, all right, I got to figure out what to where to go first. Um, something that stood out when you were describing it was in the initial phase of that process, which is I think it's 20 or 25 asks from your sales team. So is that something that's incorporated in their outbound messaging? Do you have any examples of what those like those asks would be? Is it meeting-based? Is it... Oh, it's always meeting-based. So it always has to be a meeting request in the subject line, meeting request, May 26 at 9 a.m. And then it has to pack the punch of a really tight uh, one-liner, one to two-liners. And so you have to break down the, the the greatest attributes of your firm and the product, right? So you're going to probably discuss, you know, AUM, the current product, uh, the success of the product, and but you have to be very thoughtful in that construction. And there must be a clear call to action. 99.9% of the emails that people send to me don't have a clear call to action. Dan, can you meet May 26 at 9 a.m. in Boston? You're either going to, so you're going to, you're going to look at that subject line. Your brain's, you're going to look at the subject line. It's going to say to your brain, oh, Guy's requesting a meeting for me. Then I have a subject line, right? We, we manage a 22 stock, large cap growth portfolio, disparately weighted between two and 8% which means our biggest weightings, our biggest upside opportunity. And over the course of time, over the 35 billion that we manage for numerous institutions, uh, we've been in the top decile over you know, one, three, five, 10, 15 year period. So right now, you know, we do large cap growth, it's concentrated, it's disparately weighted, which means we're, we're making bets, if you will, based upon valuation. So that makes sense to everyone. They're either gonna say, this is interesting to me or it's not, but at least I got through size of the firm, size of the fund, size of the strategy. Obviously, the firm's been in business a long time because I mentioned 15 years. So, and then a clear call to action. That at the end of the day, Dan, we are in a business of being professional meeting setter-uppers. So if you can't like basically get comfortable with that, and if that's going to be frustrating for you, you need to figure it out, right? You're a professional meeting setter-upper once. And so that's very administrative. It's very pedestrian, which frustrates people. But that's the secret to success. And then the other side is when you're in the meeting, you now have to be this professional that dumbs down a very complex strategy into very simple ways to understand it. And then you have to have the guts to ask the two most important questions. That's a perfect tie into the second part of this, which we wanted to debrief or elaborate on, which is the ability to go from that, like we said, just being the meeting scheduler, which we know we are, like that's what sales is. You just acknowledge that you have to be able to do that to being in this storytelling mode and being able to be compelling and convincing, distilling very complex information into understandable information in a very small window of time. So 
How would you say that you're working with your teams or in your own experience, what is the key to being effective in that situation when you're in the meeting and distilling that complex information into easy to understand story? So first off, you have to prepare uh, and you got to be thoughtful before you go into the meeting. Number two, you have to be able to answer the 15 to 20 questions the due diligence analyst sitting across from you wants to know. They should never have to ask what I would consider to be basic questions. You should address that in your opening remarks. So we would sit down and say, hey, Dan, you know, great to see you. Might exchange some personal information, you know, family, whatever it is, how was your weekend or whatever, just, you know, not just the niceties, right? And then you eventually kick it off and you might ask a couple of questions, but remember you, you've prepared, you've gone on their website, you've read some of their newsletters of the firm, like the RAA, what they've done recently. So you have a good sense of who they are and you should acknowledge that. And they might give you a little background of the firm. And then you might say, what, what would be the best direction for me to take it? They might say, hey, well, we haven't met before. Give me an overview of Edgewood, right? So what am I going to say? There's key things that a due diligence standards, you know, they, they need to know. Okay. And it should be insulting to you because I've been on calls recently where our team uh, has not coached the PMs and they're going through stuff. And I'm watching the, the due diligence analysts have to ask them questions, which is now wasting time that we should have addressed right up front. So num number one, you need to know what the key questions are and be able to answer those in your opening remarks because they're thinking of those questions. So the third thing is you have to get into a conversation, right? So you have to be able to start going back and forth versus one person talking all the time and then seeing what, what matters to them. But if you tee it up properly, they're going to naturally end up asking questions. You're going to lead them right in that direction. You should use very common sense words, you know, basic words. Don't use high fluent words. Try to avoid a lot of stuff that, you know, earnings numbers and stuff like that. Try to really have them understand the basics of the strategy. And everybody wants to know this. Okay. Like, what do you do? That's number one. Uh, what's your investment process? How do you generate ideas? Um, how, to, how, how does something get into the portfolio if it's a private fund? How do you pick an investment if it's a public fund like Edgewood? How do you pick a stock? How does that get in? And then what are your risk controls? Because at the end of the day, the secret sauce okay, to, um, to investing is your portfolio construction process. Once you've established how you, get, how, do you, how do you buy that security, right? But then it's portfolio construction and your risk controls and then unpacking that. And if you, if you can tell that story in such a meaningful way, they should literally be able to look at you like, wow, that totally makes sense. Now, they might poke and prod, right? But then you can bring them back. Uh, to center, if you will. So, and, and that that's that's really what it is. It's just trying to simplify the story so it's very understandable and it's in very common sense terms. So, before I, I'll give you an example. When I first met Alan Breed, president of Edgewood, I said, "Alan, describe me the investment strategy." He goes, "Gee, think of it this way: pick a company in the S and P five hundred that, if you could have it be your family business today, which one would it be?" So he goes, "Let me just give you a few thoughts." And he goes, well, wouldn't you, want, wouldn't you want a company that is like a monopoly or duopoly? Yeah, that would be helpful. Don't you want a company that generates tons of free cash flow? Yeah, that would help. Don't you want a company that has high and increasing margins? Yeah. Don't you want a company that has an excellent management team and little or no debt? Right? So I'm like starting to think to myself. I love right. that. That sounds like a great it. business. <laughs> it's like, yes. Okay. And then, and then it's a... Uh, you know, it's they're 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 basically products or recurring revenue, right? You know, razor and razor blades. Okay, now you're like I'm just starting to feel really good. Okay, cool. 
And then, and then, then you be, then you begin to understand when you think of Edgewood, it's like, oh, they're buying these spectacular businesses, and they're just trying to buy these great businesses at great prices. Hmm. Well, that makes sense. And then, then interestingly, like what our number one holding is a seven percent holding. It's up twenty seven percent today. That's how you generate alpha, right? Is you can have like so you're basically making bets based on valuation. When I say bets, instead of having it be equally weighted at three and a half percent, or excuse me, at you know four and a half percent. You have some positions that are five, six, seven, eight percent positions, and then some that are coming in the portfolio two, three, four. So what you want is every year you want your biggest weightings to be your biggest winners. People are like, that makes sense to me, <laughs> right? You see, yes. even as we're, as we're talking right now, but here's the deal, Dan. You, as I'm, co- if I'm explaining that story to you, you're not the end buyer. You're going to leave right now after, after I leave, walk out, and someone's going to say, hey, what, who, who's that guy, Guy? How's your meeting? Oh. That's an incredibly cool strategy. What do they do? Oh, they manage a highly concentrated portfolio, disparately weighted, buying these super great businesses at great prices. It's like, got it. How's their track record? Phenomenal over 15, you know, 10 to 15 years. Oh, makes sense, right? No turnover on the investment team over 20 years. Wow. Great bench strength with six analysts on the team, all younger, the next generation. Wow. Any other products they manage? No, they're focused on doing one thing really well. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> I kind of love this. This is making, you know, but you, you can t- you see, how I have passion for it. You can get into any strategy and I could have that same level of passion for almost any strategy because you, you, you wouldn't be in business if it weren't a cogent strategy. I think this is probably why there's a difference between Dakota and other groups that are out there is that your, t- your, your firm and your strategy was born out of salespeople who have done the role for a while. So for, for me listening and for us having this conversation, many listeners tuning in, what I think is so critical in that is like, like we said in the upfront is you are dictating what the follow-up is. So that little anecdote we just had, which is the follow-up set of questions, it flows very well and it's predetermined because that's how you're structuring the pitch that you've got in the meeting. And when I say pitch, I don't just mean yeah. the three or four things your home office is going to tell you to say about the strategy, right? Like alpha, sharp ratios, whatever, whatever metrics, it's the story that flows that makes common sense to someone who's going to leave that meeting. And 20 minutes later, maybe field a few questions, but they'll be armed to do that. It's almost, it's like self-perpetuating or extending the meeting past the meeting, which obviously for us salespeople, we get the value of. So I appreciate that you were able to lay it out like that. And people remember, like you just said, they remember stories, not numbers. And you're always selling to somebody who has to sell to someone else who has to sell to someone else. And then you have to think, okay, at some point they're going to, I'm going to have this person across from me is going to have to pitch my strategy to an investment committee. The question is, it's not going to be the only one. It probably has two or three that they're going to pitch. Hey, I did my research. These are the three. Boom. If they understand your strategy because you've educated them so well in understanding how we do what we do, what at the end of the day, they're going to probably end up picking you, right? Um, so people remember stories, and that's, that's, that's what we try to focus on. That is something very specific with the institutional sales process that I believe is quite different than your more traditional sales process is that finals presentation or when you're at those last stages, it's going to be one of a couple of groups that are probably either interviewing or doing something similar. So all these elements have to be coordinated and planned, whether like starting with that very first meeting, the due diligence meeting, then there's more formalities as it goes. But you did also touch on some of the portfolio manager interactions I feel like somebody in your shoes probably has just a, a wealth of knowledge and examples of where those meetings can go well and maybe where they can go poorly. 
what would be a best practice when you are helping to make those introductions? Let's say you're the salesperson, you've done your initial meetings. Now it's time to introduce the PM to the broader analyst team. What would you say is the best practice for those that are out there that may have to do that with their own PM team? So number one, you have to prepare ahead of time and have a conversation. You have to brief the PM on the firm that you're meeting with, the things that you've learned. And you can either do that in an email or a phone call. Absolutely vital. Number two, you have to have at least five minutes before the meeting to describe how you want to run the meeting and what we really want to accomplish in the meeting. Number two, the PMs, you have to have a very good relationship, okay? Um, but you have to ask them to answer the question they're asked. And you have to give short answer first. A lot of PMs will be asked a question, they'll get frustrated. Because look, a lot of times these are these analysts are younger, less experienced. The portfolio managers are older, much more experienced, male or female, it doesn't matter. Um, and they get a little, they can get a little frustrated, right? But they have to be patient and they have to answer the questions, but they have to give the short answer first. Giving a short answer first, best advice I ever got, Keith McDowell, famous uh, institutional sales trainer, short answer first. And because uh, it, it then brings questions, Q&A. So those three things are so important. And, and if you do that, and then the last thing I'll say, which is probably the most important thing in that meeting, you have to be the choreographer. Like if the PM is going on too long or they don't answer the right question, you have to interject and say, hey, Dan, I think what Joe was asking, I know you're answering that, but I think what he was really getting at is like, how do you guys construct the portfolio, right? What are the elements that you put together? Because we talk a lot about that, you know, in every meeting that we do. Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay. So we have and so you're, that, that's your job because it's a really important job. You're not just a bag carrier to sit there like a gnome and say nothing. Like your job is to manage that whole conversation to make sure it's going in the right direction. And if something's not being asked and it's on the table and, it, and it's right there, you have to be able to interject and say, hey, hey, Dan, would you mind just going through a little bit, a, a little more detail how the team goes out and sources new opportunities? Like, who are you speaking with? How do you see these? Do you attend conferences? Or these or these referrals, like how do you go about finding your new ideas? Because I don't think it's quite as clear, and it's pretty special how we do it. Yes, one thousand percent. Still, like actively facilitating the entirety of that meeting, and then having the social cues or the awareness to sit in there and, and fill in the gaps. Any examples where maybe it didn't go so well that you have just from memory, where maybe it was just a, a really bad answer to an analyst question or something that you maybe had to really yeah, like one, actively one. manage in the meeting itself. Yeah, I mean, one of I, I made a comment about Google uh, in the meeting, and the PM disagreed with me. We got in the car afterwards. I'm like, don't you can't do that. Like, a it it, it discredits all of us, right? So that 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 was definitely a nightmare um, when when you do stuff like that. I mean, put it this way: there's, there's just so many questions over time that someone's going to want to ask that are relevant to a strategy. And over time, as an experienced marketer, you you really should know every question they're going to ask and have have an answer for it, right? And that's that's kind of the preparation part. Really, really important um, to think through because we, we know all the questions are going to be relevant to a buyer, right? There's there's nothing, there's no like, you know, curveballs that you're, that you're going to be thrown at. Now, I will say, if you're going to do a physical Fauna's presentation, what's typically the public pension fund, I've done, you know, basically hundreds of them. The answer is, Try to be as short and succinct as possible in describing your firm and your process in very common sense words. Okay. Don't take more than 10 minutes. Five to 10 minutes is all you need. Then you put it back to the consultant who's sitting on the board and that consultant will, will direct the questions to you that he thinks the board members want answers to. 
they're remember they sit in these meetings these meetings can go long you could be the last person to present they're going to like you if you're short and to the point and it's really easy to understand in fact alan breed got the best compliment from one of our clients about two months ago the chairman after an update said alan i just want to thank you for making what is pretty darn complex very easy for someone like me to understand because they're not in the industry right using big weird words and all that stuff is not productive make it easy to understand the story yeah the boards of directors are lack of a better term like either average joes or just people that are part of like if you go down to techspers as an example one of those you know the big constant yeah. so those board of directors for all those like fire and police groups you know they're they don't they're not thinking about investments that much they're just like they have to be there for the vote though so you do have to be able to cater to that audience it's like that meeting is not overly technical that's where you that's where you have the story be short and concise and you know, you, you hope you get feedback like you just described, which is positive and that you simplified it and made it easy to understand. Exactly. Is there anything else on the, the Dakota process or the sales process that you'd like to highlight before we move on? I, I would just say, you know, for, for all of us in this business, just understanding that we're your professional meeting setter upper and it's the consistent application of those asks. If you go into our website under our core principles, one of them is ASK. So you can never forget. You got to keep ask. You got to keep asking for meetings, and then on the other side, you, you, it's the your 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 professional storyteller, right? Your master messenger, and really embracing that because uh, that 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 to me is the fun of this business is storytelling, complex to simple. This question is going to be more sourced from uh, a few of our listeners that wanted to contribute to this interview and to this recording. What would be like one or two words of wisdom that you might give to, let's say, someone who's a newer external, or maybe is is taking the leap from their inside sales role now to their earlier career as an external working with institutions. Would you give them any advice or thoughts just from a, a career longevity standpoint or, or what to expect when they're now in that role? You have to just break it down, right? So what I would say is the practical advice is focus what matters most and then start to write down, if you could only do one thing, what would it be? And if you go do one thing after that and break down in its component parts, whatever actions you're taking, because people end up focusing on things that don't matter, right? You need to focus on what matters most. For instance, I'll, I'll give you an, a concept outside of investing. Right now, the rage is ChatGTP, ChatGTP 4.0, AI, right? All of this stuff, okay? Great, okay? What's the outcome, right? As I asked our team this morning, what's the outcome that we're looking for from this? It's great to understand the technology. It's great that there's technology there. But what, what outcome are we looking for? What outcome do we want to get? And I would say maybe we should ask Google and say, what are the top 10 things businesses are benefiting from from chat GTP? And do that, would those apply to our business? Right. So it's that it's that thinking part that I think a lot of people just rush into execution or they just keep doing what they're doing. For instance, if you focus on what matters most, okay, and one of the things that matters most is I need to send an email to get a meeting. But if I'm sending an email, I'm not getting like one guy said to me, he goes, hey, your, your database isn't any good because I can't get any meetings out of it. I said, it's not the database's fault, it's your email. He goes, what are you talking about? I said, send your email and I'll show you. I sent it back to him. I cut out 90% of the words. I'm like, you, you never got to your point. You never asked for which, what the person never asked for the meeting. So I think in any practical world, people, you know, and this is, I, I do this. We're still doing it today. I do it all the time. Focus what matters most is my biggest practical advice. Would you say that you, uh, in, in your role, are you spending a lot of time editing and, 
mixing up people's emails that probably suck and are terribly ineffective, but you'll, you'll have a, a good way to help turn that around and make it so it's yielding better results? Well, we start off with the formatting. And then what we're seeing is our team will exchange emails left, right, and center from what emails are working. And so uh, th- through Slack. So Slack is obviously a great intercompany communication channel. And they're, they're sharing the best emails all the time. So the, the answer is yes. But what ends up happening is your teammate, the teammates end up sharing information that's working amongst themselves. I feel like a lot of salespeople can naturally be selfish and or less collaborative. Maybe that's just my own experience from larger firms, like huge asset management firms where everybody kind of needs to protect their own moat in order to you know keep their position that it was less collegial <laughs> and collaborative. But yeah, things like Slack, it, it, if it works for one person, don't reinvent the wheel. Just just borrow that and have as many people apply that tactic or or that email as possible and just keep them on file and templates or whatever, right? Just no exactly. need to reinvent the wheel. So let's uh let's chat a little bit about Dakota. So um I've probably said this five or six times, but I we've had so many of our audience say that they are users or that they've tapped into some of the free resources, our our clients to some degree. What would you say is happening behind the scenes at the firm or maybe things that are going on that some of those that are your clients should be aware of? So our whole mission of the second business we started four years ago, which is database business and a content business, is to uh, help uh, make the life of an investment salesperson easier. So if what we do on a daily basis, if it achieves that goal, then we put it in our database. If it doesn't, we don't. And really what we're solving for, Dan, which is kind of crazy, it's a global problem, right? For a global business problem. CRMs have stale data, stale sales data. Okay. And that's for every company and it frustrates salespeople. Thus, there's not CRM adoption. It's never the CRM's fault, right? Everyone blames, blames Salesforce. It's either the data is inaccurate because the company hasn't kept it up to date because they rely on salespeople to do it, which is a failed strategy, or the user interface design is not designed for how that type of salesperson works. And so what we're, what we aim to do every single day is to keep the most important thing for a salesperson, which is leads and fresh information so they can make sales calls uh, complete, accurate, and up to date. So that behind the scenes, just imagine, right, you know, 40 people running around every single day in a calm manner, not running around, but literally focused on those things that are in the best interest of our customers. And we focus on nothing else. It's only about serving them to give them fresh leads and then value-added information, for instance, we collect over 30, we've collected over 35,000 holdings at the public pension funds and growing um, value-added data like that. We have 800,000 13F filings. Uh, and then you can go asset class or sub-asset class. So you could go to an RAA and see what exposure that RAA has to certain ETFs that would be similar to your strategy. So you know, hey, they have $25 million in a small cap ETF. We manage a small cap strategy. That's a good target for me. So that that's how we think about the world on a daily basis. Yeah, God, I could just reiterate how daunting and frustrating it is when you've got a huge repository of just stale information or just second guessing it, right? Like it's not efficient for anybody. You wake up for a sales day and you want to get the right information, and then you just have however many inaccurate data points. We, my team, I we I hired uh, three different SDRs more or less, so in, internals effectively. And we realized so quickly when they were doing large volumes of outbound activity, how stale some of the contact info was. And it's just, it's a daunting task to have to go in every day and just comb through your CRM. So you're providing a, uh, you know, God bless the service you're providing out there for salespeople, right? (laughs) Exactly. That's why there's so much turnover, right? If you're going to waste your first six months, eight months, just trying to clean up the data, figure out who to call on, et cetera, and you're not making sales calls, 
you're six to eight months behind and you probably have an 18 month fuse, right? In terms of uh, starting to build a pipeline. It's unfortunate. That, that's really what we're trying to help within the industry. Whether it's the database, um, I think that like Dakota Live, you have a lot going on and I think the content piece has been great. But would you say for maybe anyone that hasn't interacted with Dakota, is there anything that you've observed that has just been picking up traction besides the database as far as content or what people that, what your clients are saying, like that they really enjoy and are tuning into? I think they, I mean, Dakota Live, uh, whether it's that where they watch it live or see the, the uh, recordings after within, within Dakota Marketplace, um, people love the allocator interviews. We have unbelievable interviews of allocators so they get to really understand, um, you know, a certain company from an allocator's perspective. And secondly, I think re people really enjoy our key account descriptions because a lot of these big key accounts are very complex and we'll break them down in, into their component parts like a JP Morgan private bank, show people where all the wins lie based upon your product and what the opportunity set looks like, and then the exact person to call on. All that information, when we, when we do it on Dakota Live, I'm in the studio right now, uh, we, we slice and dice that after the call, we transcribe it, and all that information goes into Dakota Marketplace so people get that benefit. So we're always trying to provide insights and information, again, to make the life of an investment salesperson easier. Uh, and that's what people really enjoy. Yeah, oh, for anyone... So I'll also point out, sorry to interrupt. Not um, all good. But we also have spent the past 18 months creating a whole business around networking events called Dakota Cocktails. So we invite allocators and investment salespeople to top venues in their hometown, whether it's San Francisco, LA, Denver. Uh, we just did Detroit, New York City, Boston, West Palm Beach, Miami, Atlanta, uh, Dallas. We just did an event on Monday night in Dallas, had you know 64 people post. So we're just trying to help people connect, build relationships, get to know one another, network, which has been the number one thing, feedback that we've gotten from any events we've done is more networking time. I feel like underscored there is the value of having more of that independent organizer of the event that has the connection between the sales professionals and the allocators, because that what that's what can be hard for the wholesaler out there that's trying to coordinate the event that's sponsored by insert asset management firm, right? There's like, there's this natural uh, I don't know, de desire to like disassociate when you've got like these fun companies just trying to pump their own strategies. There's a perception around it. So I think what you've been doing with some of these live events bridges that gap really well, gets people into the in the door, probably in a more open mind, better opportunities for networking. So I'm glad to hear that because at the end of the day, if it's not individual meetings that the salesperson's booking, your best hope is that you arrive at a cocktail event where you happen to be able to catch a bunch of allocators you otherwise may not have ever had the chance to meet. Yeah, absolutely. Well, keep us in mind for the uh, the next Boston event. Let us know if we can uh, we, we can get involved here and, or, or bring the communities together in any way, shape, or form. Absolutely. So I always like to close it out with just talking about life outside of work. So you've shared a ton of knowledge and wisdom from your career and what you're up to at Dakota. But how about outside of the office? Do you have any hobbies, passions, interests, or pursuits that otherwise take up your time when you're not in the office? Uh there's one thing I do is I love getting on the water. So, you know, getting on a boat is a total blast, whether it's, you know, in the, in the uh, wintertime down in Florida or the summertime up in Lake Winnipesaukee. But personally, I kind of, you're catching me at a wild time. This is a Thursday, May 25th. And on Saturday, May 27th, uh, Penn State plays Duke in the national semifinals of the NCAA lacrosse tournament. So you're heading and, down to Baltimore? Are you still in Baltimore? No, no it's in Philly. In Philly now, nice. 
and I have two sons on the team. And so they're playing at Lincoln Financial Field. Oh, congratulations. That's awesome. <laughs> so pretty out of control. Damn, they're both on the same squad. That's awesome. Yeah. Are they um, are, are they twins? Or are they just juniors, yeah, freshmen, senior, sophomore? Exactly. Junior, freshman. They're three years apart. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's ridiculously cool. It's kind of the dream come true, right? Could you ever play in the Final Four of your Division One lacrosse team in your hometown, right where the Philadelphia Eagles play, right? Now, being a Boston guy, you might not like that, but yeah, it's where the birds play. I mean, it's they've been a lifelong birds fan, and all of a sudden you're playing in the stadium in front of 50,000 people. It's kind of out of control. That's remarkable. That's remarkable. My dirty little secret, though, is I'm from the new. I'm from New Jersey. Grew up in North Jersey. I'm a New York sports fan living in Boston. Gotcha. So it's my under, my undercover <laughs> alias here. But uh, wow. So for um. And so uh, which team are your, uh, your sons on? Uh, Penn State. Penn State. Okay, awesome. Were they, um, and we'll, now we'll get into some college lacrosse talk here. Were they, was this run, were they expected to do well in the tournament? Is this kind of a, a Cinderella run? No, How's it been? Cinderella form? run. No, because you, you've got Duke number one, Virginia number two. or you know, Which is your alma mater, right? Yeah, Virginia number two, and you have Hopkins three. Maybe Hopkins is two and Virginia's three, but nonetheless, three best teams. Then we're fifth. And uh, we were supposed to finish six out of six in the Big Ten uh, regular season. We finished tied for first, so we won the Big Ten. And then we were able to get in the tournament, and we were down 7-1 to Princeton in the first round. Miraculously came back and won. And then we beat Army at the Naval Academy on Sunday. Dramatic win, last-second uh, win. Uh, so, yeah, it's been it's been a dream run, right? We, we've just been the underdog. We've been the underdog all the way along. Duke will be an incredibly tough game for the team. Um, and we'll see, you know, but no, I'm so proud of the kids. They've worked so hard. The coach is amazing. He, uh, he's taken his team to the final four, two of the last four years, 2019, 2023 with 2020, not being no, no final four. So pretty impressive track record for the coach Dan And have they had a, a national championship under their belt for, at, at the no, program they've, level? They've, they've only been in the NCAA tournament twice, 2019 and 2023. So it's definitely it's it, listen at the end of the day it is really really hard for any team to make it to their own final four division one i mean there's just very few coaches that are able to pull that off because at the end of the day it's just a lot easier to recruit at certain schools right recruiting at virginia north carolina right uh notre dame duke uh you know cornell maryland right those guys are they're, they're very enticing programs and really good climates in general so absolutely I can, if, if there's anything that I can uh, relay is that I'm a Quinnipiac University alumni and our hockey program in similar vein has advanced in the national hockey tournament a couple of times. We lost in the championship game twice in the last 10 years. This year, though, the final four was all blue blood program. So it was like your historic powerhouses, uh, Michigan, Minnesota. I'm blanking on who the uh, Ohio State, I'm uh, just blanking on it, but we made it through, got as underdogs, finally won. It was unreal. So I'm hoping that Penn wow. State can upend <laughs> some of these blue bloods because that's effectively the biggest programs, right? You've got Hopkins, Duke, Virginia. Those are all the, the schools that typically dominate college lacrosse. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So now I'm really proud of and our, our coach really has a bigger vision for the kids, which is cool because he's all about teammates for life and what you do after college and helping everyone. So pretty extraordinary guy. That is incredible. That's amazing too. What a, what a great tradition. Memorial Day College Lacrosse uh, <laughs> Final Four. And that is unbelievable that you've got two of your sons that are playing. So best of luck to them and congratulations to you. Uh, anything that you'd like to send off to the audience here before we close it out, where they can find you, how to get in touch, any of that? 
Yeah, Guy at Dakota.com or just Dakota.com. Uh, we have tons of resources. We're here for you. So if you're an investment sales professional, uh, we'll, we'll do anything for you. Sales training, do a demo of our database, anything that you need. We'll rewrite emails. We're really here to serve. So we'd love to help. And thanks so much for having me on the show. Thanks for listening. Find us on Instagram at internal use only podcast or email us at internal use only podcast at gmail.com.